The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. We're about to inspire you with the stories of real people. Welcome to A Current Life with your host, Jimmy Gould. In the next hour, you will meet one of the most interesting and successful people in the world. Listen as Jimmy gets their real story of success, both the highs and the lows. We hope that you take with you some of the ideas we will share today and embrace your own journey. Now, here's Jimmy. Welcome to another edition of A Current Life. I'm your host, Jimmy Gould, and I'm very excited and honored to introduce you my very special guest, Dr. James Nordland. Welcome to A Current Life, Dr. Nordland. Well, thank you very much. Well, I'm extremely happy to have you here as a guest on my show. Uh, we've known each other for some time, and uh, I have great respect for you, so I'd like our audience to learn a little bit more about you. Dr. Nordland is the author of more than 400 investigative reports and articles He's taught in underserved countries all over the world, specifically Moshi, Tanzania, and Haiti. He lectures at annual academy meetings and is a clinical professor of dermatology at Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio. He is also Professor Emeritus at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center. You know, Jim, this show is about life's journey and the ups and the downs that we all experience and overcome to get where each of us is meant to be. So on that note, I'd like to start with your early years and ask you where you grew up as a child and what was that like? Well, uh, I grew up in Minnesota, St. Paul, Minnesota. There, um, I have to say, uh, growing up in Minnesota, I, I thought the whole world had snow and ice every winter. <laughs> and I was rather shocked when I got into the second grade and we were stung, studying about uh, Central Africa where uh, it never snowed. People didn't have to wear snowsuits or couldn't make uh, snowballs. The, um, we grew up in a regular neighborhood. My, my father worked for uh, the telephone company. My mother did until we started coming along and then she stayed home and took care of us went to a local catholic grade school and high school uh, actually the high school i went to was a boarding school uh and somewhere along the line i got interested in medicine and uh went to college and then to medical school at the university of minnesota let me ask you do you have a, a particular memory that's the most fond for you as a child growing up that maybe had a an effect on your life later as you look back on it well, of course, there's there's any number of uh, memories. the The schools I went to always were were very very. Um, they were good schools. They were supportive, encouraged you to study, and uh, of course, I, I so I recall those. Uh, even though in high school I had to go to school on Saturday mornings, took Latin six days a week. Hmm. I, I, in retrospect, I'm I'm still glad I did it. My my parents, my mother and dad, were very supportive of uh, myself and my. Uh, uh, brother and, and three sisters, and uh, encouraged us, of course, to go to school. We, um, we grew up in one of the nice neighborhoods where everybody played together, played baseball out in the front yard, or not front yard, in the street. Uh, and so it was uh, one of these just um, very average, middle-class, nice neighborhood with nice people. 
everybody went to church on Sunday, did good things, worked hard. So uh, kind of just average things. Now, let me ask you, I, I often ask this question. Uh, you know, we've been doing this show about a year and a half now and had some exciting people on whose journeys they've shared with us. And I always ask the question, is there a particular moment that you really uh, had to overcome a tough time? You know, uh, we talk about the journey, the ups and the downs, which all of us, and certainly you see so many people every day in your medical profession and have dealt with so many things that, that, that obviously you can see the impact it has on people. But is there a moment that you can look back upon and say, wow, that was tough, or maybe when you were going through it, you didn't think you'd get through it? Well, certainly uh, there were uh, some tough times. The, um, I grew up, as I mentioned, I went to a, a Catholic school, and I, I think uh, the school, the, the people that taught there, my parents thought for sure that I was onto the priesthood. And uh, one day in college, I decided that was not for me. And this was a bit of a struggle. Uh, it was an expectation of my parents. I guess it was my expectation all my life. Uh, and all of a sudden, from that expectation to now what's going to happen, what am I going to do, uh, it was certainly a, a change. Uh, it was a... Uh, well, we had to kind of sit down and rethink about it and rethink about your life. And so it took a, a, some orientation to, to get myself back going. And, uh, and then, of course, in college, all of a sudden, I'm taking science, science that I had never taken before. But, uh, you know, again, it's the sort of thing you, you work a little bit at night, and eventually it, it worked out. And in retrospect, it was, it's, uh, I was very lucky. You know, I... You know, I, I... It's funny because I've uh, always looked at this kind of spiritual side of life and then the physical side of life. And we bought a, a science company uh, that was called Seed Magazine and Seed uh, Science Blogs. And we used to have these very intense conversations with some of the scientists about, you know, science versus the kind of spiritual side of life. Uh-huh. As, a, as a doctor and with all the research you've done, um, how does your faith play a role in what you do every day? Well, um, I, I think it. I think it does play a role. Obviously, as you suggest, there. Um, and, I, and I think the most important thing was the whole idea. I grew up with. But there's whatever that person is sitting across. And being a dermatologist, a lot of times people say, "Oh man, the stuff you guys see is so awful," or this and that. But but you have to look through past that, or all the things that don't look so nice, or don't feel so nice, or don't sound so nice. And inside that is a person, and it's a valuable person. And I think the whole idea of the value of an individual a person, their importance, probably dates back to what I learned uh, in grade school and high school uh, about the, the person, the soul, uh, their importance uh, in the universe and humanity and in God and, and so on. So I think I think it really does make a difference in how you, you see individuals, especially in medicine, where not everybody who comes is, is necessarily the most attractive physically, but they are they are physically and spiritually, and you see that inside them. Well, I, I can vouch for one thing that I, uh, um, you know, I'm, uh, I love doing this show, which has been, was a creation of mine that I, about a year and a half after asking to, to do a show about business for four years, I finally acquiesced, but I wanted to do it about people, and I wanted to do it about their journey, and you know, when I first met you, you took the time to get to know me, and I really felt a bond. And so whatever was bothering me, 
really was secondary to the fact that I had this great experience of being able to share our journeys together with each other, which is why I've wanted you to come on the show for so long. And I really think you take the time to look underneath, you know, and and you have a, a comforting way about you. So I would imagine that you've applied all of those things to, you know, looking not just at the particular thing that you may be addressing at the time with their skin or whatever, but really the effect it has on them as an individual and as a person. And I I commend you on that because I think that's the difference. I think we all have to give back in our lives. And I think, as you know, today we're going through a particularly difficult time, people, and things are changing. The world's more complex. And I think it's, uh, it's nice when people care as much as you care and are as passionate about what you do. So, well, thank you. Thank you for those kind comments. I, I always tell my students, uh, you shouldn't really treat a wart. You should treat a person who has a wart or whatever, because that's, that's really, uh, it's the person that counts. And if they don't need the wart or whatever they got, or psoriasis or acne, uh, again, you, you, you want to treat the person and find out what it bothers them about, how you can do this, how many different ways. And I think if you involve them and you get interested in them, uh, one, you learn a lot about people, but two, I think you can find better ways to manage this stuff. So at least that's what I hope. Well, it, it's a great concept, and you're great at it. Let me ask you, what, where did you go to college, and where did you go to medical school, and why did you go there? Uh, <laughs> there, I went to um, I went to a boarding school called St. John's Preparatory School, and um, that's why I say we went to school six days a week, and we had study hall on Sunday, so I guess we went seven days a week. But on the same campus in central Minnesota, which was 12 miles from the nearest town of 12,000 people, uh, there's also a university. It, it's on 1,200 acres. I think they're still primeval, never been cut. Uh, it was run by uh, some Benedictine monks, and, um, the, uh, and it's still there. It's still a, a quite famous school. They're, uh, they're currently about to retire football coach, I think, has more wins, football yeah. wins, than any other coach in the country. In the country. So uh, I went there, um, I suppose, mostly, as I said, I grew up in a Catholic neighborhood. My parents certainly expected that we'd go to Catholic colleges. My sisters did. Uh, this was an all-male school, and un- unlike today when there aren't many all-male or female schools, Back then, I, I, other than the University of Minnesota, most of the schools were, in fact, either all-male or all-female. So uh, we went to, I went to this all-male school. It really wasn't until my junior year in college when I was reading a, an article in the Saturday Evening Post when it was still being published about this person who was a, became a physician. And I have to say it absolutely uh, fascinated me. So as a junior, I started my pre-med. I had to scurry a little bit to, to get through, to get all the requirements done. I, I went to uh, University of Minnesota for medical school. I had planned to go to the University of Chicago. Uh, the alternative was University of Minnesota. And I had applied to a couple other schools, and I was accepted to all of them. The, different, the difficulty was cost. Mm-hmm. I think uh, my medical school per year was $500 at the University of Minnesota. Wow. And it was, yeah, and it was 2000 at the University of Chicago. So I had a discussion with my dad, and my two sisters were in college, and he said, well, you know, that's a lot of money, and we don't really have it, and, you know, is there some reason for Chicago? And I said, not really. And, and so I made the decision to go to the University of Minnesota, which 
it, in retrospect, turns out to be good because if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have gone to my internship, et cetera, et cetera. So it was mostly, it's, it's, what, um, it's what we did. When, when I grew up in this neighborhood, and I, I don't want it to sound uh, restricted or limited, but I can remember telling people, you know, we, we're going to go to Wisconsin, and we're going to go for a week and on a vacation. People say, really? You're going to travel that far? I mean, nobody oh. went to Chicago, or nobody went to Yale or Harvard. I mean, it was just beyond uh, thought. You know, so I, I wondered to... today if you took that same program, what do you think it would cost today for someone to go to? I mean, I don't even, I mean, I, I have two kids, one kid in college and one on the way, and I think we're up to something like, if it's out of state, something like, you know, as much as if you're all in, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year. I mean, yeah, it's yeah just, easily. Yeah. I mean, it's clearly one of the issues, I think, and we've talked about it in a few other shows, about our education system needs to be a lot more affordable because yeah. that's just outrageous. But uh, so it was a five hundred dollars to $2,000 decision. That's interesting. Yeah, and that was total. The uh, the college I went to, St. John's, uh, was a thousand dollars. That was boardroom and tuition, wow. uh, and, and and then your books were a couple hundred dollars, and you could actually make that amount of money in the summertime working. So, uh, but today the same college, I think it's in the eighteen or twenty thousand uh, for college in University of Minnesota Medical School. I have no idea what the the costs are, but the University of Cincinnati, where we live now, I think their medical school is fourteen or fifteen thousand a year, and that's just tuition. That's just tuition without the room. Let me let me ask you. So, what major you want the focus on dermatology? <laughs> well, very honestly, it was a bet. The uh, <laughs> when when I was in medical school, we we had some some lectures. Uh, they would have various people come in. And we had a series of lectures on, on dermatology, and I thought they were pretty interesting. Then I, I went to Duke uh, and did some inter- my internship in some internal medicine, which I did first before I went into dermatology, and again had the opportunity um, of, of um, working on a dermatology floor for a month. That was one of the options we had. When I finally got up to Yale, we admitted this, uh, this patient one night who had a really terrible skin rash. And I told the intern, I said, we need to do this, this, and this. And he said, fine. And then, but the next day, he hadn't done it. So I asked him, well, why, why didn't you do this? This is what we were supposed to do. And he said, well, he had called a dermatologist, and they told him not to do that. And I said, well, who, who is this guy, this dermatologist, who clearly doesn't know what he should be doing? And he said, well, he's walking down this hall right now. And so this little guy comes there. He looked like he was about 12, although he was board certified. And so we had this long discussion and he said, well, why do you care? And I said, it's so obvious I could be a better dermatologist than you. He said, you want to bet? And I said, yeah. He said, you come by tomorrow and we will give you an interview. And you, if you want to, you can come. So that's, that's absolutely what happened. Uh, he's, much better dermatologist, terrific guy, a good friend, became one of my teachers, mentors, colleagues. Uh, but that's how I got into dermatology. Well, it's a, it's a great, uh, it, it's a great reason, and it's a very honest reason. And obviously, I mean, uh, I can certainly say that you are uh, amongst the leaders in that field. I'm, I'm sure around the world because uh, you're known for. 
having done so much, so much work in the field. In fact, I, what I'd like to ask, because I don't think mm-hmm. a lot of people, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think a lot of people realize that skin's an organ. Uh, do you think they do, and am I correct about that? And, and, and kind of tell us a little bit about what skin is. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think if you ask people, they'd say, yeah, it's an organ, it's the largest organ. But I think their assumption, including a lot of medical colleagues who are non-dermatologists, make the assumption that it's either leather and dead or a piece of saran wrap that you wrap <laughs> around you, and it keeps the, uh, the butterflies and worms out and keeps you inside. <laughs> and, of course, that's totally incorrect. <laughs> the the skin is is is. I got to come an, to one of your lectures. I got to come because it's like you're so straight about it, and it's so funny. It's like, uh, I mean, you have a great sense of humor about how you approach this, and and you seem to enjoy it. So please keep going. That was, that was a great description. Well, uh, of course, the skin. Um, I I always give my. Uh, my colleague, uh, the, uh, the head of medicine that was here, was a nephrologist, and, and we would kind of argue about who was more important. I said, look, you got a kidney. You can replace that with a piece of saran wrap and a little pump, and people do just fine called dialysis. But you can wrap people up in saran wrap or anything else, and if they don't have skin, they won't survive two, a week. And, and the skin actually, the way you need to think about it is it is, it is your interface between the world, the environment, and your internal uh, system. And it needs to tell you if the sun is shining, if it's cold out, if it's hot and humid, if there's bugs around, if there's germs. Everything has to be sensed through your skin and your liver, your kidneys, your heart, your brain. Everything needs to know what's going on the outside to adapt to that. And so your your skin is really, uh, it's kind of like today's modern telephones. It keeps you connected to your environment. And and uh, if it doesn't do that, then really things things don't go well. And that's why saran wrap doesn't work. It, you need to have this 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 um, organ around you, and it is sending thousands of signals every minute to every part of your body, saying, "This is what's happening. This is what you need to do." And if you think about all the chemicals, the germs, the bacteria, the viruses, all of that has to be. Uh, evaluated and and uh, information sent to your body to deal with it. Does it send it to the brain and then it goes from there, or does it send it to different organs? How does that all work? Well, it, it sends it to all of them, of course. The brain, <clears throat> most of, of what goes to your brain is through nerves. So something's tickling or itching or hurt or painful, uh, it sends a signal. And, and that, of course, we perceive as a sensation. But in addition to that, uh, when you go out and it's a sunny, bright day, your skin begins making a molecule that goes up to your brain, controls some of the nerve uh, cells up there. It tells uh, parts of your brain, this is what's going on outside. It says, look, it's getting sunny out. It's summer. We need to get prepared to tan, to adapt to the sun. Uh, we need to cut down your appetite because you don't need that much food in the summertime. Whereas in the wintertime, it needs to say to them, look, you need to eat more to produce heat. Because we're, again, you have to kind of think of this in more an environmental system from 100 years ago. So it, it, it sends some chemical signals, but it also sends nerve signals. And uh, they're both important. The nerves, itching, pain um, are important. 
They warn you that something's happening. But these other signals coordinate your environment, uh, your skin, and your internal organs so you can adapt to your environment. So uh, how much water does your skin hold? Well, the skin, like all the other organs, are I think the number is around 92 or 93% water. Now, the big problem for skin is it has this outer layer called the stratum corneum. And it needs to keep that from evaporating too much, otherwise we get dry skin. So there's a thing called transepidermal water loss. How much does water evaporate? But for the most part, all of our organs, bones, skin, liver, most of what we're made of is water and then some carbon, nitrogen, and that kind of stuff. So how, you know, and I heard this or read it somewhere when I was researching, you know, your show, uh, why does uh, a men's skin age better than women's? Am well, I right about that? <laughs> it depends upon whom you ask. Uh, women, women, of course, become much more concerned about spots. Uh, they become concerned about wrinkles. By and large, that's it's not a man a man's complaint. You know, I see women and I warn them about certain things because they get a scar. And if you get a scar, you can't fix it and they're stuck with it. Men brag about scars. You know, they say, hey, I got a scar. And and the person may only be 48 years old, but he'll say, yeah, during World War II and the Battle of the Bulge, you know, I got this scar, uh, of course, which is nonsense. But so uh, part of it is is how we perceive or how we deal with, with uh, things on our skin. Uh, most women would like to get a peel done because they get rid of these brown spots. Men uh, rarely uh, are concerned. I, we see a lot of girls with acne that are scarred, and we do do peels on them to smooth their skin out. I offer to young guys, and I think we've had one or two takers out of hundreds, but the girls all do it. And they, uh, so, so, so do Caucasians get wrinkles during aging, aging and why do Asians get sunspots, and why do certain, you know, different people get different things? I mean, is it just, what causes that? Is it the pigmentation, or what is it that, that Well, happens? the pigment's part of it. There, there's no question that there's a huge genetic factor. I, I, I see people every day that have barely a spot on them, and they'll tell you their parents didn't have many either, and you see other people that are just covered. But there's no question um, the two things that will really wrinkle your skin up. But one, one is smoking, especially faces. You can walk in a room and look and say, oh, my gosh, this is a smoking person, especially around the mouth. But the other thing that will do it to you uh, is excessive amounts of sunlight. A little sunlight's good. There, um, so I think there's some genetic factors. But I think also, if you, if you think about Asians, their skin isn't that much darker than, than uh, Caucasian skin. And yet they almost never get skin cancers. They can, but it's not common. In contrast to dark-skinned people, Indians and Africans. Uh, so some of it is pigment. Uh, I think there's something else in their skin that makes them more resistant to the damages. And then the brown spots, I think, are familial. And, and a lot of times people get these little brown spots in their face, their back, and so on. They call them age spots. Right. Yeah, that's not true. We call them wisdom spots. It's something that you've earned by all your life experiences. 
So we don't call them eight spots. We just say, ah, oh, these are wisdom spots. And you know, I'm with you on that because, as you, as you, <laughs> you know, I always say getting getting older is not for sissies because you get all right. these things you never had. You wake up one day. I know I've come to see you many times. You go, what is that? And you go, it's nothing. You know, it's kind of like, but, you know, if it wasn't there the day before or the week before, it's all of a sudden it appears. So I've now, I've learned from you. I just said, hey, I'm getting wiser as I'm getting older. Absolutely, absolutely. You should be kind of bragging about these things. I'm going to start after this. I've told everybody that you were on my show, and they, they, I got so many emails about asking, like the big question they want to know about sunscreen. They want to know, yeah. where did all that come from? Because there was such a long period of time, nobody nobody talked about sunscreen. That, you know, True. All of a sudden, now it's like the big thing. And I would also... I'm curious, when we talk about that, does it prevent vitamin D production using too much sunscreen? Well, sunscreens really were developed in the mid-1970s. Well, you maybe aren't old enough to remember, but for people as old as me, they'll remember the the copper tone ad with the little girl who was kind of sunburned, and there's a dog pulling down her little underwear, and her, her, her little bottom is white and everything else is red. So they began uh, mostly as protection against sunscreen, which hurt, or a sunburn. And it really wasn't in the 80s until they developed more in, in mid-80s before people said, you know, if you use these, you could prevent skin cancers. Now, for most of us, by that time, we were well-cooked and, you know, the damage was done. Um, but that whole idea of, of um, uh, sun damage leading to skin cancers really is a relatively new concept. Mm-hmm. If you think back, uh, you know, back in the 18th century, 19th century, if you lived to be 50, that you were Methuselah. You know, they, they <laughs> thought you were ancient. But today, you're barely out of your adolescence when you're 50. So I think the, the, um, uh, the, the, the duration of our life makes a big difference. There, there's yeah. an, ex- there's so, an exhibit uh, today that you should, if you have time to see it, at the Cincinnati Art Museum. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's on bathing suits. So a man's bathing suit in 1891 from his neck to his elbows to his knees. And the women wore dresses that went from their neck to their wrist and down below their knees. And they wore stockings to cover up their bare legs. And they had they had morality police like they do in Saudi Arabia to make sure your skirt went far enough below your knee so you weren't a hussy. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, uh, today uh, bathing suits are not that that full, as you've noticed. No, uh, de- definitely not. In fact, uh, you know, I've seen, you know, older film and I always wondered, they had to be hot as heck when they were going down to the beach in those days. Yeah, I, I should think. Um, there's, a, uh, there's an exhibit on a man named Edward Pottest. Uh, that's his last name, which I think it means pot roast. And he was a, a Cincinnatian uh, impressionist, and he liked to paint uh, the Long Island Sound, people that were there. The reason for the exhibit of bathing suits is because if you look at people that are at the beach back in 1870, 80, 90, they had all these – it was pretty much like a burqa in, in Saudi Arabia, except they didn't wear face masks. So uh, times have changed in terms of of um, what's happened with bathing suits. Uh, it is true if you use a lot of sunscreens, especially if your skin's darker, that it does block the formation of vitamin D. 
Yeah, I encourage a lot of my patients uh, to check with their family doctor. You can measure the vitamin D in your blood, and they may need supplements, especially, again, as we get older and we're not out much. And, you know, how many 80-year-old people are still laying on the beach? No, no, I agree. What does the SPF stand for? SPF stands for sun, P for protective, and F for factor. So it's a sun protective factor. Well, um, as I expected, this has been very interesting. We're going to spend a lot of time when we come back. We're going to take a short commercial break. I want to talk to you about pigmentation, which I know is, you know, a specialty of yours. And, uh, you know, um, we're, this is Jimmy Gould, and we're here with my very special guest, Dr. James Nordland. You're listening to A Current Life, brought to you by Smart Water and AdSpace Mall Network. Please stay tuned. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, myth Reality and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Has your role model let you down? Every day it seems we turn on the news or read online that today's entertainment and sports stars have gotten out of hand again. Drugs, theft, drunk driving, and other actions of disorderly conduct are what some so-called role models are all about. Not here. Tune in to Runway Role Models and find out about some positive people who are making a difference now and paving the way for the future generation. Our generation. Tune in to Runway Role Models every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Kids. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to A Current Life with Jimmy Gould. If you have a question or comment for Jimmy or his guest today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd like to send an email, the address is acurrentlife at yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Uh, we've been talking. Uh, well, welcome back to A Current Life. This is Jimmy Gould with my special guest, Dr. James Nordlund. Uh, Jim, before we took the break, I had one more email that came to me, and it had to do with, do babies under six months really need to wear sunscreen? Uh, and I heard that it had never, ever been tested. Can you clarify this for our listeners? Yeah, um, I think that's correct. By and large, most infants have not been tested in, in the safety of, of sunscreens. Uh, my, my recommendation to my own patients is babies under six months, uh, they're not going very far. Put them in the shade, uh, you know, put on light clothing, and you can cover them up and you can avoid the need uh, for, for uh, sunscreens. 
or if they're in buggies, they have the little um, canopies to cover them up. If if I were going to use one because it was absolutely necessary, and I, I guess that could happen, you can get these made out of titanium dioxide. And titanium dioxide is is totally inert. So you don't, it, and it sits on top of your skin, so it doesn't absorb, it doesn't produce any chemical reaction in your skin. So if I had to use one, I would use that. But my preference for children under two is, if, if possible, let them play in the shade or play someplace out of the sun. And we had one last question, and that was, do people with darker complexions need to wear sunscreen? Well, that's a really good question. Um, they do, uh, although it's, it's less of a need uh, than... Uh, would, for somebody with light skin, it's the uh, a, a darkly colored skin has a sun protective factor somewhere between four and ten. So a uh, a, a ten sun protective factor removes ninety percent of the sun. In contrast to fair skinned individuals like you and I, uh, where we have virtually no protection. But we think that you should really have a sunscreen protection factor of about 25, which removes 96%. So I, I think it's still a good idea. People with black skin, dark skin can sunburn. They get skin cancers, although not very many. It's unusual. So I think it is a good idea to prevent sunburn, to prevent whatever little sun damage, if they're going to be out. I think they should use sunscreens. Um, so let me switch to uh, the pigmentation segment of this. Uh, you were privileged to study under Dr. Aaron Lerner, a right. foremost leading investigator, clinician, and teacher in the Department of Dermatology. Was there a specific lesson he taught you that you've always cherished? And kind of give me your background with you and Dr. Lerner and also kind of what really got you to focus on pigmentation, which you're known uh, really as a, as a key specialty of yours. Yeah. There um well, Dr. Lerner was really quite famous at the time that I started working with him, as, and he was a mentor, a teacher, and later a colleague. Um, he had been elected to the National Academy of Sciences, and I, I, as far as I know, he and only one other person, uh, dermatologist, have ever been elected to the National Academy of Sciences for, for the wonderful work that they've actually done, and he did uh, uh, just a number of really uh, remarkable, uh, groundbreaking sorts of discoveries. So he was a wonderful man. Uh, one night I was on call at the hospital at Yale. He was he was the chairman at Yale, and uh, I was on call and he was there. And so I went over and sat down and we had dinner together. And he he mentioned to me that this disorder that Michael Jackson had called vitiligo. Um, it was a disorder in which there was some mechanism that caused, that killed melanocytes. Now, melanocytes are the cells in your skin, the epidermis, the outer layer, that are responsible for making the tanning, the skin color. Caucasians, we don't make very much, and dark-skinned people, they make a lot of melanin, but we all have the same melanocytes. So here's this disorder uh, that killed them, and he said, you know, we could discover what what the mechanism is for killing these melanocytes. We could use that to kill malignant melanocytes or melanomas. And that's a brilliant insight. Yeah, no and kidding. I said to him, that is a fantastic idea. And that that's how we started this study. And I began studying under him. We, we worked hard. We never discovered that. 
but I think that's still one of the, the goals. If we could discover that, you'd have what I'd call a natural cure for melanomas. So the vitiligo that, that Michael Jackson suffered from, is, is it more prevalent in, in African-American people than it is in uh, Caucasian? Well, of course, that people think that because it's easier to see anybody with darker right. skin. Right. But the studies that have been done literally in Asian skin, in India, Africa, uh, the prevalence seems to be pretty consistent around the world, and it seems to affect men and women, males and females, pretty equally. So as far as we can tell, it's pretty equal, uh, uh, an equal opportunity disorder. How do you treat vitiligo? Well, um, what we would really like would be some cream or pill or medicine we could give people and say, look, it, it'll stop the spread of this. But we don't have that, although everybody would like to find that. If we could, we would have the problem pretty much solved. There, um, when we treat this, we generally, around the world, we all use similar sort of things. We use topical cortisone creams. We use some other things called Protopic or Elodil, often in combination with the cortisone cream. And then we use uh, some kind of ultraviolet light. Uh, could be narrow band ultraviolet, could be sunlight, depends upon what's accessible. This is a, a little bit of a change. 20 years ago, we would have put people on what's called PUVA. Uh, PUVA is an acronym for a chemical called sorolin and an ultraviolet A but we don't use that as much anymore for a whole variety of reasons. Those you, are the, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Those are the, the, the major treatments today. There's a treatment also like Michael Jackson, when you can't get the color back and it spreads a lot, you can take the remaining color off, and that's what he did. I see. So basically you remove the outer layer. It, it, and that was kind of made this may sound naive because I'm obviously uh, – uh, not anywhere in, in, in your league and, and trying to understand it. What does this whole philosophy of, of um, shedding your skin, so to speak, you know, when you go to you read about how people are doing these peels and all this different stuff, what does that really do? Because when I've seen people have a peel, I mean, they, their skin looks pretty awful. I mean, it, you know, it, uh, but they tell me it's healthy. Can you tell, talk about that a little bit? Sure. Uh, I, I, I don't know about the healthy part. Uh, the way you need to think about your skin has got three layers, okay? And the one that we're going to deal with when you peel it is the outer layer, which is called the epidermis or the outer layer. Okay. And, and it's made up of a bunch of cells, skin cells called keratinocytes, and they, they form uh, a protein called keratin. It's the same stuff that makes your finger and toenails, your hair, although it's got a little different uh, chemical format. And it, it produces the outer layer skin. That's what you touch and feel. And that outer couple layers uh, of the skin, um, it's, it's not inert. It's still, it still can produce biochemical reactions, but it's mostly there to keep water out. You know, and we were talking about butterflies and worms and sands and virus uh, kind of stuff. Sometimes that outer layer... Can, can produce these wisdom spots, these brown spots. Sometimes it can produce what we call keratosis, a thickening of the skin. They don't look nice. And you can peel these off. Now, it doesn't change your health. It does change your appearance. 
And you can use any number of different chemical reactions that basically uh, just destroy the keratin protein so it peels off and then you build some new ones. When you do peels, uh, there's three kinds, superficial, medium, and deep. If you do a deep peel, you get down into that second layer of skin, and your skin's going to be red, may have a little bleeding. Uh, people are going to wonder if you had your face boiled a little bit. Uh, it doesn't look nice, but eventually it heals up. It just takes longer. So, so it does heal. And, and, and yeah. is there a residual left? Can you tell that someone had that done? Do you have to repeat it, I mean, over and over again, or is it just a one-time thing? Well, uh, uh, rarely they'll get a little scarred, but most of the time it doesn't. Uh, I personally don't do deep peels. I do medium peels and above, and it heals up. And most of these things will last you know, a year, year and a half, two years, and they come back, and then you have to redo it. The, uh, the deeper the peels, the longer it lasts, the more wrinkles you get rid of. But none of it's forever. It's just it's for a while. So there's no real solution to this, but there is a fix that's temporary. It's like, is it somewhere to having an epidural in your neck if you have a neck mm-hmm. problem? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It, it's like that, or, you know, somebody has a facelift. Mm-hmm. Um, they look fine. Um, Joan Rivers, how many has she had? Three, four? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you get it, lasts for a few years. But, hey, damaged skin, old skin sags a little bit. After a while, it sags some more. and then you have to kind of desag it a little bit and, and redo it. So it doesn't last forever. So now here's the big question. So today, more than any doctor that I try to get into, it's harder to get into a dermatologist than any doctor on the planet. So tell me, well, I mean, I assume you agree with me, but secondly, I've never seen anything like it. And we've talked a lot about it, and is it partially because of the sun, because of the wrinkles, because of the aging, because of the baby boomer generation, because of the vanity. Are those all the contributing factors? uh... Well, they are. Uh, Certainly that increases the demand. I think the the amount of of, uh, new work with the uses of lasers and peels and chemicals, fillers, injectable fillers, Botox, all of these things uh, done by dermatologists, plastic surgeons, uh, make make people want to to see physicians to do dermatologists to get this stuff done. There's no question there's a shortage of dermatologists in the country, and that has to do with Medicare funding. Uh, Medicare will only fund the training of 330 dermatologists a year in the United States, so there's not enough. We should be training a thousand or more. But and that's, that's in this country, right? So, I mean, you know, correct. you're talking about in other countries, it's got to be unbelievably a vast problem, correct? Well, no, not necessarily. In other countries, sometimes they don't have any limits, and uh, sometimes they have as many dermatologists as they need in, in developed countries. When I was working in Africa, I, you know, I think uh, there were three uh, in, the, in the country of Africa, and they have, what, 36 million people, so... There, uh, there's, there's obviously a shortage, but by and large, um, Europe, they do pretty well. The Far East, Japan, Korea, they, they, uh, they train a fair number of, of uh, physicians, many of whom come here, actually. So I was going to ask you, in, in 1998, uh, with your wife, Mary, you uh, went to work at the Regional Dermatology Training Center on the campus of the Kilimanjaro Christian Medical Center in Moshi, Tanzania. We've talked a lot about it because I've spent time over there and, and, and on Kilimanjaro. What was that experience like with you? Because one of the things I want to talk about 
uh, in a remaining time is also, you know, your travels. You travel extensively, and that was one of the journeys you took. And I think you spent, what, a year or two over there? Yeah, a little over a year, yeah. Well, I have to say it was absolutely a fantastic, wonderful uh, experience. My only regret in looking back is I didn't say a second or third year. See, I thought about it, but I had a job here still at the university, and other issues came up. The uh, the country, first of all, uh, Tanzania, uh, if you think about the Garden of Eden, this is where the original people in the old Duvai Gorge were first uh, detected by archaeologists and paleontologists. So I kind of look at it as the uh, biblical Garden of Eden, and it is. It's got more flowers and more plants. they got trees with red leaves and jacaranda trees that are just covered with lilac bushes and uh, and of course, you you drive down the street and you go around the curve in some uh, road, a little a little dirt road with some gravel on it, and you may come across four or five giraffes standing there having a little lunch, or maybe go by a pride of lions. Now, this is not in the city, but off you know in the little parks and so on. So, I mean, here's this absolutely beautiful place. The weather, I think when we were there, a really, really hot day might have been 85 or 90, and a cold day would have been 65. Mm. The, um, it, it does rain a lot, and when it rains, maybe five or six inches in a day, uh, and that can go on for weeks. So, and the roads are all dirt, so you need a four-wheel drive. It gets a little muddy, and if you walk to work like I did, the mud will be up to your waist at least when you got there, but everybody's got mud on them, so it's okay. And the people were just very gracious, very nice, uh, lovely people. It was just a fantastic experience. And I, I don't think I've ever done anything that really made use of my skills as a physician, as a total physician, as my, my working there. It was, uh, it was good. I fell in love with Africa. You know, we've talked about it. I, I climbed Kilimanjaro, and I... Right. Love the people, and of course, we started at the base in Moshi, and and um, it was it was just, it was incredible. It's a part of the world that I think everybody, should, if they have the opportunity, should go and visit, and it's yeah. just remarkable. The people are remarkable. I mean, even with so many uh, issues and problems, medical problems over there, it's a remarkable part of the world. Yeah. Uh, really is. Like, don't don't you think? Kind of like the Garden of Eden with all the flowers and Kilimanjaro. There you see it in its pristine beauty. Uh, the snows are getting a little thinner, but uh, we wouldn't know about those if it weren't for Hemingway. And so it's uh, just a remarkable place. Yeah, I didn't see any snow until I was at about seventeen thousand five hundred yeah. feet. And what I what was remarkable was the um, and we went up with the the uh, um, the Shaka tribesmen who live in the foot of the of the mountain. I think there's like yeah. a million of them. And, and yeah. you know. I, we asked the question, I was with a biologist and a botanist, and they asked the question about global warming versus overpopulation, because we didn't see a lot of growth on the mountain either. And uh, right. the, other, the, the other thing I found fascinating were the coffee plantations throughout uh, Tanzania. Right. Well, you know, at one time, Tanzania, and I think Eastern Africa, was really the source of the best coffee in the world. Uh, and the plantations, most of them were run at that time by, by the British, as were many other things. Uh, in approximately 1965, I don't have the exact date, uh, Tanzania uh, parted from, from uh, England, and the, uh, the various plantations were turned over to Tanzanian farmers, and, and 
they really didn't weren't able to compete on an international market. So a lot of a lot of the coffee production moved to Central and South America, and so there's there's a lot of competition. But coffee plantations there are uh, fantastic. So tell me about the laboratory, uh, you know, that was established for pigmentation in Japan, uh, or the people who came from Japan, Korea, Brazil, Israel, Saudi Arabia, and other European countries uh, to kind of yeah. study along with students from the United States. And when, well, when was that, so to speak? When when I came here in 1983 uh, to, to head up the Department of Dermatology, we uh, we brought with us uh, uh, all of our expertise that I had learned from Dr. Lerner and other investigators in his laboratory. Uh, when I got here, I hired a young lady, uh, Dr. Zalfa Abdelmalik, who's still here, uh, and another young guy, uh, Dr. Raymond Boyce, he had PhDs. And we set up a laboratory where we, we could grow and culture melanocytes. Uh, you could then manipulate them to, to study the cells and culture, what made them grow, what didn't make them grow. You could study the effects of sunlight on them. We had some, some animal models that we used. Uh, we could study their role in the immune system, et cetera, et cetera. And we would publish papers uh, in individuals uh, from Japan, some of them in industry. They were from Korea that were postdoctoral students. Um, there was some couple from, I think, from uh, Israel. Um, we had some others that came from Brazil. They came to study. They'd come for six months, a year, two years. They'd learn the various techniques, uh, learn enough and, and, and do enough so they could publish papers on pigmentation so that when they went back to their own homes, they could publish this. People say, yeah, these are reputable investigators. So they would go back and study there. We had somebody from Saudi Arabia. So people would, would write and ask if they could come and study with, with these investigators. And then we had some clinical projects going on on vitiligo and other sort of projects such as that. So we kind of combined the laboratory and our clinics um, to, uh, to, again, to understand uh, more about pigmentation, sunlight, uh, the role of light and other things in skin cancer. And that, a lot of that work is still ongoing, although I'm not involved so much in it anymore. Now, you found that the Pan-American Society of Pigment Cell Research, when was that, and, and is that still going on? It, it is, yeah. Um, what year was that? There, there, there has been a Japanese Society for Pigment Cell Research, and these were the Japanese investigators who are interested in skin color, and that's always been a, a topic of great interest in Japan. Hmm. There was a European society, and there were a number of investigators from Italy, Germany, France, also interested, and they had their society. Um, so um, it was decided that the Americans should form theirs, and so in addition to myself, there were a number of other people who were very much involved in, in study of, of melanocytes, melanin, skin color, pigment. We formed our own society. I'm going to say, I don't know, 1986 or 7. And then we, we, mer we didn't merge. We, we then formed a, an international uh, society so that the Japanese, the, the Europeans, and the Americans would meet every three years so we'd have a combined meeting. And all of that is still ongoing. They still have annual meetings of all of these societies. And now there's an Asian uh, Society of Pigment Cell Research that comes from India, Pakistan, 
Singapore and some of the Southeast countries. So there's actually now four societies that belong. So it's, it's expanded. Uh, there's a journal. Uh, it's called the Journal of Pigment Cell Research and Melanoma Research. It's got one of the top ratings. It's uh, kind of the Bible for, for the research and all this. So all of that's been quite successful. Let me ask, if you look back on your journey, how did the traveling, you've been to, I guess you've been to every continent, I think, and so many countries, we've talked about it uh, privately. How has that really helped you with your study and and helped shape your ideas about pigmentation, about skin, and about how you treat and also kind of contribute to that whole world? Well, of course, I mean, traveling all these places is fun and interesting. And I have to say, we did go to the Antarctic, so we didn't do a lot of studies down there because it's a little chilly. A little, little cold. Yeah. But but the other places, um, I, I, I think the purpose of a lot of this, one, if you're doing various kinds of studies uh, in your laboratory, uh, once you publish, by the time it's published and it's in a magazine, you know, it takes six months, eight months to get it there. And it actually, I don't want to call it old, but it's not necessarily up to date. So one reason for going to other places uh, is to present the work that you're doing, the new findings. But the other side of it is when you go, um, people there have their thoughts, uh, insights. They can say, you know, you interpreted this information in this way, but we think you ought to interpret it in a different way. And you say, ah, gee, I hadn't thought about that. And so it can be the, 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 the whole idea I, I think education really is the sort of thing Socrates uh, first devised, where people get around, they sit down, they talk with each other, go home and think about this stuff, come back and chat again, uh, give your insight, my insight. I, I think that's that's the way that you become the most innovative. If you're if you work at home by yourself, you can be very productive because nobody interferes with you. But you won't. I don't think you'll be your most creative. So these interchanges, the purpose of them was exactly that for interchange. And not only did I go to these things, but all of my students uh, or my coworkers, we would do this both as meetings. We would have our Pan-American meetings uh, where Americans would come, South Americans. We'd go to international meetings, so we'd meet with people from Europe and from the Far East. And everyone would have a different viewpoint, and so there was a lot of exchange and many times people say, you know, I can do this, and if you could do this for me, we could do these experiments or do these studies, and that's how they work. Let, let, I, me, ask, I, um, let, let me ask uh, a question. I appreciate uh, the answer you, uh, that you just gave. Um, we're really, on, uh, and I hope you'll come back on the show because I find this most interesting. And again, we had so many emails. Uh, I've asked every one of my guests for the last 18 months this question, and it's been interesting, their answer. We've got about two minutes left. Uh, as you look back on your journey, uh, Dr. Norland, what do you feel is the meaning of life, the purpose of life? Ah, so maybe it goes back to my religion days, huh? I think the I... meaning of life, um, one, is to, to enjoy it personally, but I think more important is to... To do, to do as much as you can uh, to, to offer to the world, to the people, your friends, your family, whatever you can do to, to make their lives better, to enhance them, to give them the opportunity, the resources to be the best they can, and in so doing, hopefully um, help all of us be happier. Well, and I think that's, that's great, what we're supposed to be. 
It's a great answer. Our time is up. I'd like to thank Dr. Norland for sharing his journey with us. I know you're a very busy man with many responsibilities, so I want to thank you for taking the time. I'd like to thank our listeners for tuning into A Current Life on the Voice America Variety Channel. This is your host, Jimmy Gould, signing off. And please join us next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern for our next episode. Until next time, I wish each and every one of you a journey filled with hope, inspiration, success. And, Jim, to you, uh, I thank you greatly. I, I will hold you to coming back on the show, and I thank you for your time. You're a great inspiration to me and the many people that you touch in your life. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jim. You take care of yourself. Thanks. Happy Father's Day. Same to you, sir. Take care. Thanks again for joining us for A Current Life on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please tune in to another great program with your host, Jimmy Gould, next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 